when I think about grief, I think of I think about Dickinson's line, circumference without relief or estimate or end. As the people who really understood that those stages of grief, that's a that's a farce. <laughs> yeah. And that it's it's my whole life. And yes. that I'm a totally different Heather after the the loss of, of, of my son. I'm yeah. I'm a completely different person. And that's not something I pass through. That's not something I endure. There's there's no other other side for me. This is Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today I have a conversation about loss, grief, and how to talk to and give support to people who are going through the grieving process. Now I'll admit I've struggled with a kind of awkwardness and inadequacy when trying to relate to people in my life who are mourning a loss. This is not, after all, a situation where one can refer to some hypothetical flowchart of appropriate actions and responses. It involves a more nuanced and reflective understanding of what grief actually feels like. This in mind, I invited two friends to speak with me about this, Heather Dobbins, a teacher and poet originally from Memphis, and Jamie Lee Jocelyn, a Philadelphia-based essayist whose Dead Parents Society podcast deals with the topic of loss, grief, and how to write about it. Jamie Lee lost her mother to suicide when she was 12. Heather lost her two-year-old son in 2013. And I think there's a lot to be learned in simply listening to how they dealt with these experiences and through their perspectives to meditate on the kinds of questions we're sometimes afraid to ask. Grief is something that is in many ways ineffable and hard to articulate, yet it changes us and connects us in ways that are both profound and subtle. I got to know and grow close to Jamie Lee and Heather back in grad school, and we recently reunited by Skype. I began things by outlining why this topic felt important to me. Let's listen in. The idea for this conversation came from a visit to Kelly Ryder's house in Philadelphia uh, when I had the pleasure of, of hanging out with Jamie Lee and some other people that I knew from my days back at Penn. And, and we got to talking about the idea of personal loss and mourning and mm -hmm. how to talk about it sort of in the context of Jamie Lee's own podcast, which is the Dead Parent Society. Um, and just in the process of talking to Jamie Lee, I think it's been about a month ago, I realized that I've always found this process daunting. As a person who hasn't suffered a big personal lo a loss yet in my own life, uh, it's been daunting. And as I listened to the, de the Dead Parent Society episodes, uh, I realized that a lot of the conversations that come out of that podcast are with people who have shared loss and sort of share mm -hmm. a lexicon and a fluency in talking about it. And um, I realized that not just for myself, but on behalf of my, of my audience who might be thinking about this, that this would be not just a good conversation to have, uh, but an important conversation to have. And, and again, as someone who hasn't suffered a very big loss yet in my own life, I'll probably spend most of this uh, podcast listening. Uh, and I think... One thing that we talked about sort of in our pre-conversation emails is that the kind of loss uh, that, that you two have suffered sort of lends itself to taboo, uh, be it uh, mm. a, a suicide or the death of a young child. Uh, and that, again, makes it hard for people who haven't suffered equally to, um, to have that conversation. And, and in fact, um, when, when Heather's, uh, young son Reiner died a few years ago, it was, I went to the funeral. I drove from Kansas uh, to Tennessee for the funeral, um, which was much simpler than talking about it then or since. And it occurs to me that this is probably the first time I've said the name Reiner to Heather since then. 
right? So mm-hmm. it, it's this deep difficulty. And I'm going to step back now. I'm, I think I might hand it to Jamie Lee because mm-hmm. you're, the, you're the podcast host on this topic. <laughs> And, and let's talk about this process and, and, and um, how it is for people who have suffered loss and people who are trying to empathize with and, and, and console people who su- suffered loss. Uh, as both Heather and Rolf know, a lot of my writing over the years has been about the life and death of my mother who died by suicide when uh, she was 33 years old and when I was 12, almost 13 years old. And so as Rolf and I were talking when he visited a month ago, we we thought of our friend Heather because she suffered an awful loss. And something, Heather, I know you and I have discussed briefly before is just how how difficult it's it is to to communicate with people, even people very close to you, in the the days, weeks, months, maybe even years after a loss, because people are so hesitant. Well, I I I think I was lucky in that when Reiner passed, I had already had several losses. Mm-hmm. Um, my my ex husband, um, the father of Reiner, that was his that was his first loss ever. Mm-hmm. So um, I had lost my father to some kind of unknown cancer. They didn't know what the primary was when I was twenty one, and I also grew up with a great grandmother who had Alzheimer's and. Uh, eight of her nine children have since had it. So I, I grew up with a lot of familiarity with um, disease and aging and trying to find the right words. Mm-hmm. And I spent a lot of my younger years, unfortunately, trying to caretake other people's uh, feelings around me. You know, people would be like, oh, yeah, my grandparent died. I'm like, that's that's not that's not the same as, as, as me. You know, I'm supposed to graduate from the same college that my father attended, and he's, he's not here. And so I, I bit my tongue a lot, and I think I was overcompensating for a long time, and I, I learned from those experiences. And so when it came time, you know, for, for Reiner, which was a very sudden, um, unexpected death that we still don't know uh, the reason why, he passed away in his sleep. They call it uh, sudden, unexplained death in childhood. It can occur from the age of two all the way to 13 or so. Um, by the time that happened, I knew that I could free myself of that obligation to other people. Yeah. And I, I became a much better steward of, of my heart and my own needs and, uh, and protecting myself. I wasn't uh, really prepared. I don't know if anybody is. I couldn't have foretold the folks that would have been the best for me, the most comforting people in my life. I I think before Reiner, I would have, you know, said a handful of people, and I would have, I would have been wrong. Yeah. Um, because I, I I was surprised that the people who offered the most comfort were uh, fellow makers, right? Artists and and writers. My brother's a painter. Um, because I think our daily practice is that we always know that we're not going to get it right. You know, it's like Baldwin says, we don't really get the book that we wanted. You know, we have to settle. And I feel mm-hmm. that way in my, in my daily exercise as a writer and my brother does as, as a painter. So I had no illusions of grandeur about, you know, somebody was going to say the perfect thing. It was going right. to be this, this healing balm of Gilead. Like I had, 
<laughs> I mean, if the old masters hadn't been able to achieve it, you know, how is I possibly going to have that expectation for myself and, and for those that that I loved? And yeah. so I, I found that because the, the artists and the writers already knew that, yeah. they were they were a lot more forthcoming and they didn't have that same level of self-consciousness. You know, they were all, I know this isn't right. I know this isn't good enough, but here is this. Mm-hmm. Here is this this gesture, this specific thing. You know, um, I, I, I think maybe Raw feels a, a little bad that he, he didn't write me something or tell me something. But for me, the gesture of a, of a 12-hour yeah. drive, um, you know, I saw that and, um, you know, I, I, I cried over that. It was very concrete gestures, even more so than these perfect words or these perfect condolences that have, uh, have uh, maintained me. Yeah. Can you think of a few of the other gestures around that time that were particularly memorable or important for you? Yeah, for me, when I think about when I think about grief, I think of, I think about Dickinson's line: "Circumference without relief or estimate or end." Mm-hmm. As the people who really understood that those stages of grief, that's a that's a farce, <laughs> yeah. and that it's it's my whole life, and yes. that I'm a totally different Heather after the the loss of of, of my son. I'm, yeah. I'm a completely different person, and that's not something I pass through. That's not something I endure. There's there's no other other side for me, and so I really appreciated um, kind of bossy people who would give me options. <laughs> you know, you know, there were lots of people who were like, "Hey, I'm here for you. Anything you need, just let me know." That was overwhelming for me. I I I, I couldn't drive myself to work. Right. My my best friend at the time who who passed away ten months after Reiner, she drove she drove me to work. And yeah. she just said, I'm going to drive you to work. Yeah. <laughs> and that is what she did. And yeah. then after that I asked to drive my Papal's nineteen ninety one pickup truck because mm-hmm. it, it I had no memories of a car seat in it. Mm-hmm. You know, I had I yeah. had people send me books. We had a, a up here at Bennington, who sent me a, a, the book of Psalms in Hebrew and English, uh, even rocks, glass balls, things that I could hold. I needed very tangible things that I could carry on my body with me. Yeah. And then also really specific things that didn't have anything to do with, with food. But, okay, I'm going to come over and clean up your, your son's room with you. Yeah. You're not, you're not going to do that by yourself. Yeah. And then when you move into this temporary home, I'm going to clean it for you. Yep. You know, just things like that. Just a real go-to attitude. You know, right. here are these gift cards for these restaurants. Um, here here are, are some tickets to go on this trip. You know, my, right. first, my first Mother's Day without Reiner, my brother was uh, an American fellow at the, the Rome Institute there. And... My mom said, "We're going to go to Rome to visit your brother," mm-hmm. and I, I thought, "I don't, I don't, I don't know if I can handle that." And then I thought, "You know what? I'm going to be so sad. I might as well be sad in one of the most beautiful places in the world." <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. it was. But you know, she was a little bossy about that, and I, mm-hmm. I really, I really needed that. I needed clear-cut options, 
and hey, we are going to do this and we're going to to distract you in some ways and remind you of all of all of this of this beauty that's that's here for the taking if if you'll just pay attention. Yep. Yep. I um so you know, I was in seventh grade when my mom died and I I think when anybody's in seventh grade, all you really want is to not stand out too much and to be normal, whatever that is. Or if you're going to be something other than normal, it it's it has to be of your own doing, you know, like you dye your hair pink or you or you listen to a different kind of music, which actually isn't that abnormal because that's what people do at that age. But <laughs> I think I think around the time when my mom died, you know, all I wanted to do was just blend in. And in in and also, you know, when I look back on it, I think of my my friends who were of course also in seventh grade and they they were really challenged at that time to to be supportive of someone who went through something that I think is unthinkable even for, you know, it doesn't matter how old you are, you know, if somebody dies dies by suicide. And my mom had had a long struggle with alcoholism and, and depression and uh, some other mental health issues, but it, which I was aware of leading up to her death, but not all, a few of my friends knew a little bit about her drinking because I had told them about it. But for the most part in our community, which was a small town in New Hampshire, people didn't know. And so it was, uh, if this makes sense, in some ways, I think it was even more of a shock to our community than it may have been to my, my immediate family and maybe the inner inner circle, you might say. But when I think back on on what people were able to do for me, I don't think as a as a twelve and thirteen year old seventh grader, I would have been able to handle somebody saying, "I'm gonna." I'm going to do this for you now, or, you know, here I am taking care of you because that was actually the opposite of what I, what I wanted then. But I think there were a few people in my life who, who did things for me without really telling me that they were doing things for me. For instance, um, one of my, one of my good friends, her father, uh, was the coach of our school's girls basketball team. And I was not an athlete at that time. So I wasn't going to be on the girls basketball team, but he's, he came to me and this was maybe a month or two after my mom died. And he said, you know what? I really need a manager for this team. And I just, I know you don't know a lot about basketball, but I really think you're the person for this. And he, he, it was all in the context of he had this job that he really needed me to do. And I think this was just a man who thought this, this young woman does not need to be spending a lot of time at home by herself at, at this time in her life. But he, he was smart enough not to phrase it that way, because if I thought he was doing this out of some kind of, you know, sympathy, I probably would have turned him down. But instead, he really needed me to do this job. And so I, I rose to the occasion and I, I kept the books for the basketball team and did whatever else a middle school girls basketball team manager does. And uh, it pro was probably a decade plus after all of that, that I stopped and thought, and realized, oh, you know what? Kayla's dad did that, not really because he was that concerned with who the manager of his team was, but because he needed me to, he needed, he needed to know that I wasn't, you know, by myself and, and uh, unsupported at that time. And I also, you know, I had another friend whose, whose mom used to give me rides a lot of the time, pretty much uh, my entire life 
around those years was about trying to get rides to and from places. And I think that's something that a lot of pre-adolescents go through. But I also remember uh, my friend Emily's mom, every time she would drive me home, we would probably sit in my driveway for probably up to an hour and she would just let me talk. And I think I would talk about family stuff and things with my mom and, and things that I didn't usually talk about. And, uh, she just knew if she was going to drive me home, it was not a 10 minute endeavor. It was probably going to be an hour long endeavor. And it wasn't really something we ever said or, or planned for, but, uh, she knew that. And she knew that it was, you know, me sitting in the backseat of her car, um, maybe because it's a situation where you're not making a lot of eye contact that for whatever reason, that was when I was going to say what I needed to say, uh, and, and kind of process a lot of the stuff. And, uh, she, she made that possible. You know, she, she kept giving me rides and, uh, I probably, I can't tell you how many hours we spent in her, I think it was a little Volkswagen, but, uh, we, you know, again, I think if she had ever said, you know, if you ever need to talk to me, I, I think that would, have, that wouldn't have had the same effect as just letting those, those moments come up, come up naturally. It's interesting that you both brought in a lot of applied gestures. Uh, and then, and then, uh, Heather pointed out the idea of, of her most useful, People in this situation were people who weren't too self-conscious about saying the perfect thing. And I mm -hmm. think, I think oftentimes the anxiety about saying the perfect thing creates a problem. So I guess my question is, what kind of things were not useful? What kind of things, uh, in, in both of your situations, um, proved to not work very well? And I don't want to make people in my audience cringe too much, but I think, in American culture specifically, where maybe we have less culturally specific morning rituals, um, platitudes stand in a lot. There's, there's certain, uh, platitudes that we bring to people in morning. And then also sort of these religious templates that we bring in. And I'm not, I'm not saying that obviously I haven't experienced this. I'm not saying that these are, aren't useful, but I suspect you haven't mentioned those yet. So I, I suspect that there's some things that are less than useful. Can you talk about this a little bit? I would be okay if, if I never had to hear someone say, I just can't imagine. <laughs> well, no, yeah, oh, that's fine. I don't really want you to. Right. You know, I mean, that comes up all the time. I just can't imagine. I'm just like, oh, I think, I think they're trying to show uh, a gesture of I'm not going to assume understanding. I'm not going to assume that because I've had other loss that I understand yours, which I appreciate. But I think it's strange that that's the phrase that's come up the most. And then um, I have a, a real knee jerk reaction to when people say, well, I've just been so blessed. Mm. You know, for me, that that's our that's our hierarchy of, of blessings from the higher power. Oh, you got more than than I did because I've had extensive loss in my life. I'm like, no, that's, that's, that's actually really offensive. And yeah. I, I feel great, uh, great blessings. There's this lovely uh, book by this Quaker writer, and she calls it uh, Guests of My Life. You know, and, and they're different people, and, and they're guests, and they are, they are blessings, no matter the, the duration of time. You know, and some people would, would tell me uh, with Reiner, well, I'm, I'm sure it was better because he didn't, it wasn't like he was, you know, older, you know, 
<laughs> as if, uh, you know, him being 20 or 26 would have made it an, an easier uh, loss or a harder loss than than him being two. But I, I got really lucky. I didn't have a whole, I only had like a few people say those kinds of things to me. With with my dad and with Reiner, they were they were both such weird uh, deaths, and there was so much that was unexplained about it. And I think that added to people's uh, worries about saying the wrong thing. And a lot of people would really try to grill me for medical questions, mm. you know, because uh, they were th- that scientific part of their brain, that that part of humanity where we want to know, we want answers. They would kind of go into grill mode, you know, and actually that would. Uh, increase uh, my feelings of of anxiety. Something that was very helpful to me as a kid, when my mom, even when my mom was alive, when she was struggling with what she struggled with, her her alcoholism and and related issues, I dove into school. School was very important to me. Teachers were always very important to me. Uh, Those relationships were extremely important. And I remember going back to school after my mom died, and I was only out of school for a little less than a week, uh, I don't know if that was appropriate or not, but that's what it was. And uh, but I think it was partly I was ready to roll up my sleeves and get back in there and and do what I do what I did, and I kind of needed that. But I remember going to a few teachers, and this my mom died in September, so it was the very beginning of the school year. I remember going around to teachers saying, you know, so what did I miss? Please give me you know the homework I missed. And pretty much all my teachers were just they were all like oh, you didn't miss anything. You're fine. And they just didn't want to give me any work. And all I wanted was to be like buried under a pile of schoolwork at that time, you know, because <laughs> it would be a distraction. It was something I could do. I I didn't want special treatment, you know, and uh, I'm not blaming them for being easy on me, you know, but I do remember thinking like, come on, people, like, let's, uh, let's give me some homework assignments. Um, and then, I think the one other thing just over the years uh, going off of what Rolf said about, about maybe religion is uh, as it, as it turns out, I am not uh, a religious person and uh, something people have said to me at various points over the years is, you know, the, the phrase mom's looking down on you as in like looking down from heaven. Uh, and that's just, it's not something I happen to believe in. Uh, and What's also, I think, a little complicated is, I think, you know, depending on what your religion is, if somebody dies by suicide, they they don't happen to be in heaven. And that doesn't necessarily right. bother me because that doesn't happen to be what I believe. But I that's something that I've heard people say at various points, you know, if I've done something that's, I guess, worth looking down from heaven upon, such as I remember people saying that around my college graduation or uh, you know, I've run some marathons, so people will bring it up then, or I don't know what else, but, or maybe just in general as a way to say that, you know, she's, she's watching and it, and she's so proud of me. And I just think that that's a really complicated thing to say to a person, especially when you have no idea what they believe about whether it's religion or the afterlife or related topics. And, and also like, why do I need to run a marathon or graduate from college for my mom to like be, be cool with me, <laughs> you know, like, right. <laughs> so I think, um, that's, that's been something that, that still comes up, I think at various points. Uh, and I'm always, you know, I feel like people are saying that more for themselves, you know, than for me. 
Yeah, I, I was surprised, you know, being in Memphis, being a part of the Bible Belt, that I didn't get a whole bunch of, well, you know, your your dad's in, in heaven now with, with Reiner. You know, they're they're mm-hmm. together and, you know, and then, well, and, and then my best friend Allison and my grandparents. I, I, I didn't get a lot of that. And if I did, it was more like a sweet thing. It wasn't uh, loaded in, in that way. So I was... Very, very grateful for that. But I think that a lot of that tone was set by uh, the minister we chose at uh, to do Reiner's uh, funeral service. You know, we were mm-hmm. attending a, a Unitarian church, and Unitarians are all about being non-credal. And so he very much set the tone for uh, ways to to be and not to offer well, there's a reason for everything and we just don't know what it is with our lowly, you know, plebeian human lives. He very much set, set the tone. I think when people heard his message and knew that he was the one we wanted to give the message to, and it was much more about um, active loving and compassion and how to not just be a rescuer for those who are uh, in mourning, you know, everybody comes all at once, but to be more of, you know, a builder who comes from time to time. You know, I think about what you're saying, Jamie Lee, you know, that that basketball coach came two months after, mm-hmm. not not a week. Right. You know, there's there's the two months and then the six months and there's there's those on ongoing things. You know, even now for me, it's been almost four and a half years with Reiner. I still have a handful of people who will you know, send me something in snail mail, you know, it, it might be, you know, where they'll send me a playlist or things like that. And, and I still have a handful of people who do that for me uh, or my father, because my father died on, on July 4th, which mm. is, uh, you know, it's always such a celebratory day, but it's also, you know, sad for me. And so, you know, some people are still like, what are you going to do for your, for yourself? Or what do you need to do for yourself? So that the reunion and the party and all those things don't, you know, are they going to be fun? Do you want that? Do you not want that? Like, what do you, what do you need? So, you know, that kind of that, that ongoing uh, conversation and just being able to ask, ask me, you know, what yes. is it that you need? And for me, it's been very helpful over the years to kind of delegate different tasks for people. Mm-hmm. Like, like my brother, my brother can tell me different movies I can watch and different podcasts I can listen to because he'll be like, I just want you to know there's a miscarriage or I just want you to know that there's a death of a child in this one. or There's a torture scene. Like he'll, he'll let me know mm. because I, I find that I've become uh, immensely sensitive to things sure. that I, that I watch and, and hear. And so he's that he knows that's one of his tasks. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's a, it's a concrete way you can support me. He's like, yeah, I don't, mm, you know, you should know this before you, before you watch that, or maybe, maybe you don't watch that. And then it was, it was helpful for me at, at work. I, I wonder if you had anybody at, at school who did this for you. Um, my, my best friend, she told, she had a meeting with all the teachers. I was uh, teaching at an independent school. It was K through 12. She had a meeting with all the teachers and students before I returned to work and told them uh, how, how I wanted to be talked to and and what I really wanted the day to be like for me and what they could do and what I didn't want them to do. And that was really helpful because then I didn't have to have hundreds and hundreds of awkward conversations. Yeah. You know, she did that. So I, 
I wonder if any if anybody talked to your classroom or your school about you know here's here's how we should talk to Jamie like here's how we shouldn't right I uh yeah I wish I could uh you know bring in some one of my classmates to know what what I missed but I do think they they spoke to my my classmates I think our guidance counselor did and I think a lot of my friends you know people who knew me knew to just kind of let it let me be me and let me kind of steer the way things needed to be I actually remember uh at my mother's uh wake at the the funeral home a bunch of my friends came a bunch of my teachers came and we kind of found a little a little side room and all went in there and I actually remember us kind of laughing quite a bit and just being goofy and being (laughs) ourselves and it being like okay and people being okay to to laugh in a funeral home after such a difficult time and and then in terms of you know going going back to school uh i'm pretty sure that people were just told to kind of let me do my thing and and my friends would be there for me in various ways i remember the guidance counselor saying to me like if you need a break from class you can come into my office i also remember that when I turned 13 in November, so about two months after my mom died, my, uh, my grandfather threw me this big, big family birthday party and it was so not what I wanted at all. But I think he just wanted, he wanted me to know how loved I was and he wanted probably to celebrate. And, uh, it just, it just was not at all appropriate, I think. And nobody really, nobody really believed me when I said, no, no, please, please don't, (laughs) you know? Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there was this big family, family gathering and it was fine. You know, I got through it, but that's something that's actually been in all these years after my mom died. I'm really not a big holiday person and maybe I wasn't beforehand, but really pretty much all holidays, uh, Christmas, Thanksgiving, birthdays, (laughs) I just would rather take a very low key approach to them. And I think it it does kind of trigger some of my, some of my loss stuff um, just because it's a reminder to me, I think for most people, even if you haven't suffered a really big loss, you, you know, holidays aren't always as like, as sweet as they might seem, you know, whether it's on TV or in our, in our memories of them. And uh, it's always been something I've kind of, wanted to avoid, I think. And actually, Heather, I'm wondering, are there, you mentioned, you know, that your dad died on, on 4th of July. And so are there particular days, holidays, other than that, or even times of year, perhaps even the, the anniversary of Reiner's death or other times that, that are difficult for you? Oh, sure. Um, you know, Father's Day uh, was excruciating for me for a really long, long time. And then um, July 4th, but we, my family didn't have a lot of, of reunions. Um, my, uh, my husband, Christian, they, they do. We, we have a big, uh, big to-do in, in Wisconsin. And so that's been interesting for me to, to finagle. But actually, I've, I've really enjoyed that as, as a distraction. Um, I, I find that I, I don't like to try to do the things that I did with my dad or things that I did with Reiner. Um, I, even to this day, I haven't been able to be in Memphis on Christmas because, um, 
Reiner's birthday and Christmas and his angel anniversary are all in December, which is his namesake. Uh, Boca was the same way as birthday and his death date. We're also in December. So I'm not, I'm not quite right in, in December. <laughs> yeah. And I can't always predict, but I, I, I haven't been able to, to be in, in Memphis. And I know that's, that's mostly because of fire. I'm, I'm hopeful that that, that that will change because in many ways I do miss that. Mm-hmm. I, I've, I very much enjoyed the distractions of, of travel on the holidays and being with other people's families that have become my family and the, the newness and to be able to define the holidays in a, in a different way to not um, be always thinking in, in the past and what I didn't have, but to be reminded of, um, of all that, you know, that I still do have, you know, all that, all that beauty, like I was talking about before mm-hmm. and, and love. I, 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 I feel that the, the greatest blessing for, for me from having all of the losses that have a kind of otherworldly supreme clarity about what's, what's important to me and about, um, how much I, I love and how much I am loved and how that's uh, kept me alive in many, many uh, situations where I thought I, I couldn't breathe. It was really, it was other people and their love for me that was enabling me to breathe. You know, breathing's supposed to be involuntary, but I, I think at different times of my life with mourning, it was other, other people breathing for me. And so whenever I start... Uh, getting too sad about a holiday. I try to give myself the space to feel that. And then also the, the space to feel something a little bit more and to, to focus on, on some of, of the joy because there's, there's so much and so much of it is, is my perspective and where I'm willing to look. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, for me, that's so much about, you know, being in a beautiful city and being in nature and with, with some of you know, my dearest loved ones. I think for me, you know, even though I, I have a, an aversion to holidays, one particular day that's that's been hard for me over the years is is the day that my mom died, which is September fifteenth. And I think what was difficult about that, in particular, is that it's not a date that other people know. So mm-hmm. people might know, you know, people might think, oh, Christmas that might be hard, or holidays might be hard, and uh, what's difficult about September 15th is that unless I announce that to people other than a few select family members uh, who, who've reach, reached out to me on that day, it, it's been something over the years that I've felt like I've, I've gone through by myself. And it's also just a day that I've, I've not quite figured out how to acknowledge for myself. And, uh, you know, there's not that clarity that that I'm hearing from you about, like, I need to be traveling on that date, or I need to be X, Y, or Z on that date. And, uh, and it's hard, because, you know, the world continues to operate on September 15th, for instance. And uh, I actually once when I was in high school and college, my my boyfriend at that, that time, who I think I dated for around three years, his birthday was on September 15th, which was a very cool, uh, yeah, it was such a cruel coincidence, you know, and uh, I don't blame him for that. I didn't break up with him for that reason. But uh, that was always really complicated for us. And I actually, I, I have memories of some really good conversations that he and I had about that, you know, that, that that was a really 
bittersweet day for us, you know, and he was very respectful of that. And, and even my, my current partner who I've been with for about a decade, you guys, you guys know him, but, uh, it took us a little while for him to just, first of all, remember that September 15th was a difficult day, you know, for me. And then I remember us being, we've been invited to weddings that have been on that day or, you know, like I said, just things, the world continues to, uh, function on that day. And it's, because there's never been a specific, like, I need to do this thing and this thing and that thing, and or I can't do these following things on that day. I think it's been just a little, It's there's been some growing pains. I don't know. So, Heather, are there things you do on, on the, the day that, that Reiner died? It, the, one thing that's been hard, especially with the holidays, is that sometimes I, I, I hurt people's feelings. Uh, you know, I, I know... I know that it hurts my mother and my mm-hmm. brother that I can't, that I haven't been able to be there. And I know that they understand, but I also know that those holidays are very, very important to them. And holidays became even more important for us once my, my father passed, you know? And so that's, that's a hard reckoning for me to know that sometimes when I'm, uh, I'm guarding you know, the house that's within me that needs care, that, uh, that that hurts some of the people that I love the most. So I just try to be open about it, and I just try to say I'm not sure sometimes. I'm kind of feeling this way, I'm kind of feeling that way, but please don't think it has really anything to do with you. Really, I'd like, I'd like just an allowance for that space. Um, going to the cemetery is has always been important for me. My, I grew up, that's just what, what we do. We would, we would tend headstones mm-hmm. and uh, demonstrate love that way and, and try to talk to the dead that way. And my mom modeled that for me forever. And so uh, that's something that I do. I, I, I get to Memphis and, and do that with uh, my grandparents. And that's who Reiner's buried right next to and my great aunt and, um, best friend and my father I try to I try to do that and then there's been a couple of times where I was able to do that on the date of of Reiner's anniversary and then other times I had to do it uh before yep for me it's especially because uh Reiner's last day with us was the 27th I I found him on the, the 28th um for me and I, it, I think it's, it would be hokey for other people, but for me, it's it's very helpful for him to have an ornament or for somebody to say his name on Christmas. Yeah. Um, being able to say his his name is immensely important to me, and it seems to be the thing that's very very hard for people to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, my my mom cannot say his name without crying. Still. Yeah. Um, but. My uh, my mother-in-law is, is is very good with grief. She's a grief expert. She has a lot of experience with it. And she just always knows, like, the right kind of gifts and ornaments and pictures and, and things to give me that lets me know um, that she loves me and she loves him even though she didn't meet him. And she's mm-hmm. also very good about that with, with my dad. I'm, I'm wondering, Heather, about uh, in, when you meet new people, 
now who don't initially know about about Reiner how do you handle that when it when it comes up or if it comes up and how you bring it up to people how and how maybe that's changed over time well uh, for me you know Memphis is is it's my hometown but it's also it's kind of my everything as as far as a as a writer, you know. I mean, if 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 people call me anything, they call me a place poet. You know, everything is so so informed by Memphis and how my family's always lived there and uh, still live there. Um, and and I keep Memphis close; it's only four hours away. But I found that it was it was very good for me to to move from there a, a couple years after Reiner had passed. Because I needed to, I needed to be somewhere I'd never been, and I needed to be able to go to playgrounds and see schools, and not think about um, everything that was and everything that that could could not be. Because that's that's the thing when you when you lose someone, you you lose all the following years mm-hmm. with that with that person, and all of the imaginings of of who he or she would, would, would be and, and change and, and surprise. So, um, you know, moving, moving was, was hard on my, on my family and all my friends. And it's, and it has been hard on, on me as, as well, but I, I think better in a lot of ways because, uh, I, I can walk around and nobody knows. <laughs> yeah. It was, right. it was very hard for me to walk anywhere in Memphis without people who knew. And sometimes I didn't want to see their knowing. Yeah. You know, I was, I was on book tour for my first book and that was, you know, that was three months after Reiner passed and I had waited and waited and worked and worked and it was supposed to be this most jubilant time in my life, you know, and there I was just, uh, just this walking, you know, debacle. But actually it was really uh, good for me because I'd written all those poems before him and I would travel, and I wasn't the woman whose whose child had died. I was, I was just Heather, and I was a poet, mm-hmm. and that was uh, that was really good for me. Here, um, I only tell some people because now, um, you know, I have a, I have a new family, and uh, we have a little a little boy, and um, I've been his 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 primary mother since he was since he was two, which is the same. H.S. Reiner was when he passed, and um, I, I've only mentioned it to a couple of our parent friends. Yeah, because I, I just don't want to see that, that look, and I, I don't really need them to know. Mm-hmm. Um, some people I'll, I'll tell, but it's not a cathartic kind of a revelation, kind of a feeling, and. I kind of enjoy uh, the normalcy, and um, you know, my second son is is so amazingly different. You know, I I I think of of him and and Reiner playing together, but he's nothing at all like Reiner. So I don't I don't have a lot of those those kind of memories surface, and it's been enjoyable to be in the in the parenting world without. Um, people looking at me and in so many ways I, I can, I can kind of, I can kind of pass. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's, that can be really nice and freeing. <laughs> a lot of what you've talked about 
recently are the rituals by which we structure our year and how we sort of feel absence through those rituals, through holidays and certain dates in the year. The one ritual we have to mark the immediacy of absence is the funeral. And, and I'm just curious, you know, as as outsiders, we come to a funeral and it's sort of, it's its own ritual of, of a kind of closure and, an, and, and a kind of honor to somebody's life. Um, it, for the person grieving, for the person who suffered loss, is the funeral process useful or just something to be endured? Because it <laughs> so- sounds like so much of of the grieving process happens in the months and, and, and years afterwards. Um, how does the funeral feel? I guess going back to that question, does it, does it serve a purpose or is it just something that you, that you sit through at the beginning of, of your grief? I think in, in my experience with my mom's death, uh, the, you know, I was so, I was young and I wasn't, particularly attached to any kind of ritual. I know that for other members of my family, uh, having, having, for instance, a, a wake with an open casket was really important. Uh, and it wasn't as traumatic as for me as I, as one might have thought it was. Uh, I know a lot of people are, are pretty freaked out by the idea of an open casket funeral. It's probably not something I would choose. For instance, now that I'm an adult, if I were to lose somebody very close to me, or if I were to speak up about my, if anybody's listening, if, you know, uh, when the time comes for me, please don't have an open casket funeral. I think it's weird. But, uh, I think, I think that was important actually for some members of my family. And, uh, but for me personally, I think it was just kind of something I had to get through. Uh, it wasn't, it was almost, I don't know, it was almost kind of neutral. It was just like, okay, this is what we're doing. I guess I'll just go along for the ride. Uh, I do think it was important to give a, a time and place for people to come and see us and, and reach out to us and show us their, their presence and their support, kind of as we've hinted at earlier. Uh, but I, the actual rituals of it and this sort of strange... Uh, I mean, like the, the fact of what an American funeral home is, you know, and the, the, uh, the strange formality around it, I still can't really be around certain flowers because they actually, the smell of them reminds me of my mom's funeral. And I'm just like, oh, gross. These lilies are funeral flowers. I'm not into it, you know? Well, I, I mean, I, I just, I grew up going to funerals, you know, I I was telling (laughs) both of y'all earlier, I, 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 (laughs) First of all, I didn't know that I thought furniture stores were for uh, people who didn't have any family because your, your furniture was just it was always <laughs> in, inherited from the dead. Why mm-hmm. would you have a piece of furniture that wasn't a great grandmother's or a great? Oh, it was very strange to me. I thought, oh, those poor people, they don't have many people to give them furniture. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't know that you would really buy dress up clothes unless it was for Easter or for a funeral. So I, I didn't <laughs> know that until I was in, in my 20s. Huh. So um you know, yeah, with it, we just kind of grew up with that, and I, I think because of that, my brother and I are, uh, we have very, we're very opinionated about how how funerals should go uh, go down. We went to a, a couple of funerals where it was just so obvious that the preacher didn't know uh, the deceased, and sometimes they would use that as this uh, witnessing opportunity 
um, <laughs> instead of an opportunity to to honor the life of the dead. And just so, you know, just I, to interject there for people who don't know what that means, that means converting people to Christianity, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Let, let, yeah. let us call you, call you to. Let's call you forth in this in this moment, you know. Let's just, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, my, my brother and I were very angry about some instances of, of that. And he and I, over the years, have, have spoken often together at, at a lot of funerals to to really try to, to honor the life, like with stories and, yeah. you know, just kind of those classic eulogies. You know, let's really put um, a, a face on, on this person. It's not... It's not just that they've gone and they're in a better place and that we love them. You know, here are some of the things about their personality. Here are some some quirks and some some uh, some tenderness. Yeah. So um, I'm really grateful for that. I think I think funerals are kind of like cemeteries. You know, either you're you're into them or you're not. You know, a lot of people are like, I would never go to a cemetery because I don't feel the presence of the dead there. And I think a lot of people feel that way about funerals. Oh, that's just that's just something. I'll go to the visitation beforehand and and hug the person, and then, you know, I'll take them out for Margarita some other time, you know? I, I think it just kind of depends on, on what you feel. And, of course, you know, me being a poet, you know, poets, our first job was, you know, we were hired mourners. So <laughs> I'm always going to feel like, oh, I've got to honor them in some way, make them uh, individualized in, in some way uh, possible. So uh, a really good funeral for me is, is it's really stellar you know my mom and I and and I don't think it's macabre so I'm going to maintain that <laughs> when uh when we were preparing for my mamaw's funeral a couple years ago we stayed up and we drank wine and we listened to all this Mahalia Jackson and Hank Williams and we did the whole order of the funeral together and picked out the songs and I made sure to write down the songs that my mom wanted to be played at her funeral and I've been able to have conversations with with people you know what what do you want? What, you know, do you have um, your plot picked out? You know, do you have insurance? What are your favorite flowers? What are your favorite songs? You know, do you want your friend to play the piano? Do you want me to write a poem? Like what, what, what do you want? So I like to use the, the funeral as, a, as another way to have an extended conversation with, with the living and, and our wishes. It, it feels like this is sort of about narrative in a way that a good, a good funeral e- evokes a narrative that that actually calls forth the spirit of the person, you know, as opposed to this this dreadful, again, going back to like witnessing where basically a preacher who doesn't know the person is using this as a pretext to make people think about mortality and where they're going after death. Yet, in a way, um, creating a good funeral is easier than the, the subtler narrative of of honoring these people in their absence really for the rest of our lives. So um, again, we're all writers here. So how do we bear witness? Not just, I I think there's this cliche that you write about it therapeutically and just listening to your podcast, your Dead Parent Society podcast, Jamie Lee, I know that that is a cliche Mm -hmm. that doesn't really bear out, you know, that, 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 but how do we bear witness? How do, uh, you know, as writers um, and even just, um, just citizens and people who love each other in the world. Um, how do we bear witness and speak to this absence as we live the rest of our lives? You know, I think one of the things that's come up in, first of all, in my own writing, and then also in the conversations I've had on De- dead parent society with people who've chosen to write about their, the death of their 
parents or, or about the life of their parents, but in the context of their parents' deaths, I think one thing that, that comes up a lot is how we, we get at this topic, not necessarily in a, in a head on straight on kind of fashion. And what that can mean is a couple of things. It can mean that we choose to remember or preserve our, our lost people uh, in a way that's, that's authentic maybe to the experience. So for instance, a couple of people have talked about or have written about their, their parents' death maybe through a TV show that they watched uh, that reminded them of their parents. You know, one, one person, Kristen Martin, who was on, on the podcast, she watched the show Six Feet Under and had a really big, big connection to her parents, both of whom have died. Uh, and it wasn't just because the show Six Feet Under is about a funeral home and about death. That was certainly part of it, but it was also because she actually remembers that her parents watched that show. That was one of their shows that they watched. I think it was on, on Sunday nights. They watched every Sunday night together. And uh, another person wrote about wrote poetry about a Zelda game, a video game that he played uh, kind of obsessively in the months after his dad died. So he went back and play, replayed that game and then wrote a series of poems. And as you're reading these poems, you don't really know what parts are about uh, Gabe's dad's death or are about Zelda. <laughs> and it all kind of bleeds together. But I think that's extremely appropriate in terms of how how we write or how we remember our, our grief and loss experiences. And, and you know, I've written about uh, being a, a fan of David Letterman, you know, uh, and also how that tied into to the time before, kind of during and after my mom's death. And I think uh, I've always been really drawn to that kind of approach, whether it's, you know, whether it's in terms of the form of the writing, like poetry that's a little hard to decipher, or even just writing about it kind of through, say, some... Uh, not so sad pop culture thing because I think that's that's actually really authentic to to how how we manage ourselves. Well, I love too that you mentioned um, Six Feet Under. Uh, my my dad died in '97, uh, so pretty soon after that was when Six Feet Under started, and that was a, a huge huge uh, show for um, my my brother and I. I know that was a lot of because of our of our own mourning that gave us kind of a, a vehicle to talk to each other, but also with our friends. And, you know, it was, it was on Sunday nights and, and yes. we, would, we would hang out because not all of us had cable, you know, and sure. <laughs> and then it was also a way to kind of talk to my mom and, and kind of have those indirect conversations, which is of course what we're talking about when we, when we talk about, you know, metaphor, you know, sometimes we can have those better conversations with, with that indirect method. Um, you know, Roka, Roka said that, you know, the, the best way to talk about God is through symbols. And I think, uh, at least in my experience, that's been true for, for grief. Um, so, and, and the low houses for me had a, a quite a few elegies for my, my dad and my grandfather and um, all of the relatives with Alzheimer's. And then uh, River Mouth, my second collection, I started that when I was pregnant with Reiner and I finished it uh, right before he died. And then um, it took me a while to, to place that. And actually, it just came out last September. So it's been uh, 
it's 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 been more emotionally taxing to read from that book because so much of that is is about is about Reiner and different um, fears that I had and feelings that I had and there's um, there's a quite a bit of like family lore in there as well and my dad's voice and and my mom's voice um, but again that was all when when he was with me I actually didn't start. I wrote a couple of poems about Reiner and Allison when Allison passed away that 10 months after him. But then I didn't, uh, I didn't write up about him. It's, I was mad at myself and flummoxed about it. Cause I was like, how could you not do what you're, what you're trying to do? But I was, uh, I was so angry and I was, uh, I was angry at the thing I loved the most. I was angry at elegy for, for its inability to give me back what I used to hold and how my arms were not mine without him in them. And I was uh, angry. I couldn't read poetry for a long time. Honestly, there's just so many feelings. I was like, I can't have any more feelings. I just can't have them. <laughs> and then I couldn't, I couldn't write about him for about a year and a half. And then when I started I ended up writing a whole whole manuscript, but I I, I won't call them poems, and, and I've only shown them to Caitlin, one of our peers from Bennington, because I don't know if I'll do anything with them. Like maybe they were just for me. You know, I know Mary Jo Bang wrote Elegy just just for her, and in my opinion, that's her her best work. She decided to come forth with that, but I I don't I don't think I will. Um, I think some of those things I want to to be private and I um I have to really figure out ways that I feel comfortable and that I'm not using him for a, a subject I don't feel like I did that with my dad but I want to be extra cautious with my relationship to to Reiner in that way and I'm also I'm struggling so much to remember him outside of pictures and videos and I don't want my my real memories of him to be kind of sabotaged by the writing of my memory of him, which is different. So I haven't, I haven't figured that out for myself yet. And I think that's okay. I'm just trying to be really patient. I think that's such a, a smart idea that once we write, and I think this is also true of photography, like you just said, uh, once we write something or, you know, sometimes when we remember a particular moment, we're, we're remembering how we wrote about that or how we remembered it in having written about it or how we remember the photo, not the, not the event itself. I think Annie Dillard has written about that, that sometimes photos actually get in the way of organic memory, that, 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 mm-hmm. that over time they, 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 um, they replace it in certain ways. And this is in, in more banal ways. I also think it's what you said, Heather, about about writing poetry, be, you know, and and not writing poetry, saying I I can't have more emotions. I need less emotion right now. <laughs> yes. I love I love that you put it that way. And I also know that I've had conversations with other people who ha- who actually feel the inverse of that, who who want to write because it's a way for them to feel things more deeply. And this is where you start to get into that that murky and somewhat cliche or silly territory of, of is writing therapy. Because I do think some people are able to, to channel feelings or channel emotions in writing. 
uh, in a way that is welcome to them because maybe they can't quite access that in their non-writing life. Well, it's it's uh, it's my hope that in in its own small way, this uh, this podcast conversation we're having right now will allow listeners to sort of see into the the consciousness of a stranger and through the the processes of grief, just to sort of help them internalize how it is. So I think the process of just listening to this and just hearing the specificity of your experiences. Uh, will be helpful, but maybe as a final note, is there any any final thoughts you might have about grief, how's it how it is experienced, and how it might be addressed by people who are outside the immediacy of that grief? I've learned that talking about loss and grief, while it's something that I've done, both in in literally talking about it with people and also through my writing. Even though I've done that, it's also something that I've I've over the years learned how to be kind of guarded and not always open about. Uh, and even even when I am talking about it, I'm often talking about it in a way that that protects people from it. And I've also been fortunate to know a lot of people, you know, like I mentioned through the Writer's House and other places, who've gone through similar experiences to me, and. I think that that there are a lot of people who don't have that, those kinds of connections. And so whether it's picking up a book about somebody's loss experience or perhaps even putting your earbuds in and listening to us have a conversation, uh, whether it's something you've been through yourself or something you've known people to go through and you want to be supportive of that, I think that that just having these conversations, whether they're written or... or uh, in podcast form, I think it's a very good thing. I, I think it, it helps if you um, lower your, your standards for yourself as far as what you feel like is, is good enough to do for someone who, who is in mourning or, you know, even, you know, someone who has a terminal illness, you know, it to lower your expectation and not think something has to be perfect and um, that a, a gesture, a concrete gesture, even if it's uh, a silly drawing or um, posting a song on someone's uh, Facebook page and just saying, you know, I, I thought about you when I heard this song, you know, little things like that um, really matter, especially as, as an ongoing uh, commitment, because it's not just I'm here for you. Cause in that there, there's like, well, where and, and how I can't, can't see that. That's not tangible, but I can listen to this song, I can hold this rock. I have this E.E. E. Cummings poem that you sent me up on my corkboard by my desk. Mm-hmm. You know, those those are the things. Or even just uh, here's this Freaks and Geeks DVD set. I thought maybe that would be totally unlike your life right now, and you might want to watch that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, like it, they don't Great always show. have to be <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Which was exactly what I needed. I think I watched that after Dallas because you know what's mm. more not what I'm doing besides Dallas. <laughs> 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 you know, it's like it doesn't always have to be. Um, you know, uh, heart lockets. You know, there there are those distractions and offering those spaces for discussion. And it it might just be sitting in a car, like Jamie Lee was saying, and just knowing, you know, there's a space to have that discussion here if if you want to have it. You know, I'll be a discussion or a distraction. You know, what are what are your best needs uh, from me at this time? And just being really uh, frank and, and vulnerable about that. I I found in my morning 
when I could recognize another's fragility, uh, it was it was tremendous. It made it easier to talk. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Heather Dobbins' poetry books and Jamie Lee Jocelyn's Dead Parent Society podcast, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.